0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In celebration of Earth Day, some 150 nations send high-level representatives to the UN to sign the Paris Climate Agreement. The window to act on global warming is closing fast.
1: I feel that that agreement, if we lived in a perfect world, is actually coming too late. We should have come to that kind of an agreement perhaps 10 years ago. We're 5 minutes to 12, so the speed and scale of implementation is going to have to be pretty aggressive.
0: Also, the Goldman Foundation awards its annual prizes to environmental heroes and pays tribute to one of last year's winners, Berta Kerseris.
1: We will stand for justice!
2: Feel our feet planted in every ounce of soil that we have always belonged to. Knowing that we are safe. Knowing that when you return to us, we will become millions.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth.
3: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. To mark Earth Day, leaders and diplomats from more than 150 countries converged on the United Nations in New York to sign the Paris Climate Agreement at the opening of the year-long window for its adoption. Back in 2014, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and China's State Councilor Yang Jixi struck a deal to work together to make deep emissions cuts, a deal that became the main architecture of the Paris Agreement. Still, bringing in more than 180 other nations and getting the strong commitment of business leaders for the Paris negotiations wasn't easy. Many credit the skillful, tireless diplomacy from U.N. Climate Conference and French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius and the brilliant leadership from the Executive Secretary of the U.N. Climate Conference, Christiana Figueres, who was welcome like this. At the party that some delegates, environmental and civil society activists, held the night the agreement was sealed. The Living on Earth team was there. We whipped out our cell phones to record the euphoric response. Christiana Figueres joins me again now. Welcome.
1: Well, thanks very much, Steve.
0: You know, the last time I saw you, you were practically crowd surfing in this wild celebratory party in Paris. How does it feel to be a rock star?
1: You know, honestly, that was that last night was such a crazy night. It was a fantastic celebration with so many people from so many different sectors, from so, so many different countries, all of whom were truly ecstatic and ecstatic i think because so many people worked for so many years to get to a global agreement and we did and the result was in fact even more ambitious than most people thought was going to be possible so yeah it was a very celebratory night how do
0: you feel about the paris agreement now
1: A couple of thoughts. Yes, I would agree with the celebration mood that night. It was historic. It was unprecedented and truly the result of a lot of hard work from thousands and thousands, if not millions of people, honestly. I also am quite happy about some of the very technical results that allow us to now guide the transformation of the global economy toward a decarbonized society over time. So that's the good news. The bad news, honestly, is that I feel that that agreement, you know, if we lived in a perfect world, is actually coming too late. You know, in a perfect world, we should have come to that kind of an agreement perhaps 10 years ago. And I know, you know, that it was not possible 10 years ago. We know that we weren't ready. But just from a science point of view, just from an intense vulnerability of populations point of view... We're really, you know, running against the limit here. So what it has done is put a lot of pressure now on the implementation of that agreement. And again, in a perfect ideal world, we would have a little bit more time to implement. But now we're five minutes to 12. So the speed and scale of implementation is going to have to be pretty aggressive.
0: When you say five minutes to 12, what are you thinking of in scientific terms?
1: What I'm thinking of is something that is not in the Paris Agreement, which is when do we actually have to get to the maximum point of emissions, which is called peaking, and begin to descend. We should be peaking within this decade. We should be peaking by 2020 for one purpose, which is to protect the most vulnerable populations. Because peaking after that is going to mean that we accumulate greenhouse gas concentrations then make it very, very difficult for the survival or even adaptation of the most vulnerable populations. Now, most vulnerable populations are in developing countries. The irony of this whole exercise is that developing countries themselves will have to make an effort for their own security. And that is a tough pill to swallow, right? Because developing countries do not have the historical responsibility. They're moving into a position of responsibility into the future, but they do not have the historical responsibility. And yet, if developing countries do not act, they are working against their own interest.
0: Let's talk about some of the numbers in Paris. The goal, I believe, is to keep things below 2.0 degrees centigrade rise.
1: Well below and make every effort to keep it under 1.5.
0: How important is that?
1: It's critical. It is truly, truly critical. And it is most critical for the most vulnerable populations. Again, you know, the guiding star here is how are we going to protect the most vulnerable? Because these are countries and populations that are exempted of emission responsibility. That does not mean that they're exempted of action responsibilities, two different types of responsibilities. And, you know, one of the very rays of light and hope of the Paris Agreement is that every country agreed that they want to contribute, even if it's in a small way. However, we cannot lose sight of the fact that vulnerability and impact truly is exacerbated, upon some populations. And if we do not get to 1.5, if we go, first of all, if we go above two, Steve, I have to share with you, the insurance industry has already determined that a world that goes above two degrees is uninsurable. You and I do not want to live in a world that is uninsurable. And certainly corporate world does not want to operate in a world that is uninsurable. So that's already, you know, one sort of economic threshold Now, the human threshold is the 1.5, because what the 1.5 does, it doesn't even guarantee the survival of the most vulnerable. It gives them a fighting chance.
0: One problem, the independently determined national commitments, these INDCs, they... I'm going
1: to finish your sentence for you, okay? They do not add up to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Yeah,
0: it's a very toasty two and a half or more. 2.7
1: 2.7 to 3 is what they have. So, you know, what what's the good news there? The good news of the INDCs is that in a world without those climate change plans, we were headed for a world that would have increased 4 to 5, and by some accounts, even 6 degrees. Frankly, completely unviable world. Okay. Well,
0: does it matter? I mean, because if the world is uninsurable at 2 degrees, if it's really even, you know, it's a challenge for folks to survive at 1.5 Once you get to three or four or five...
1: Then what it means is it's a a very unfair selection, right? Because it is those that have the most resources to be able to afford the adaptation to those conditions that would be the ones who would have a chance. And the others who don't have those resources would have no chance. That's not the world that we want to live in, right? So the good news of the INDCs is is that we have at least shaved off the worst scenario, the worst consequences. So that's better, but it's not where we want to be. And because we knew this ahead of time and I had warned the press at least a year ahead and I had actually told them, if any of you come, you know, and all of a sudden have a eureka moment in Paris and say, discovery, the INDCs do not get us to well below 2 degrees or 1.5, I'm going to chop your head off because I'm telling you now a year before Paris that they do not get us there. And that is why the Paris Agreement has a very, very different logic to the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Protocol is a static commitment that by X year, you will have reduced X amount. The Paris Agreement does not have that deadline. What the Paris Agreement does is it establishes a process throughout which countries will increase their emission reductions and certainly their resilience. So, My guess is we're probably going to go through a 10, 15, maybe a 20-year process of constant improvement, constant increase in efforts to reduce emissions until we get to where we need to get to.
0: So if we were to do a little bit of math, humanity is emitting someplace between 8 to 10 gigatons of carbon?
1: 32 per year.
0: 32 gigatons of carbon Mm -hmm. a year? Oh my, so.
1: I think I'm Picking up your thoughts here, Steve. So here's the math, okay? We already have 2,000 gigatons up there in the atmosphere, right? If we want to stay under 2 degrees, we only have a sum total of another thousand gigatons that we can put up there. That's not for this year or for this decade or for the century. That is a thousand gigatons for as long as humans intend to stay on this planet, unless we invent some other, you know, absorption of carbon methodology that we don't have yet. If we want to stay under one point five, we only have six hundred gigatons. So you know, you do the math.
0: Let's do the math. So roughly we have thirty years To eliminate these emissions? Yeah, no, we
1: don't. We don't have 30 years. We have much less than that. Because if we are to take those 30 years, then you are assuming that we're going to go with 32 every year, and then we're going to go from 32 to zero. Well, that is not realistic. There is no way that the economy, you know, that transportation, that energy, that agriculture can go from 32 on the 31st of December of year, whatever. And by January, we're down to zero. We have to be able to buy ourselves the time for a smooth transition.
0: Christiana Figueres is the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And we'll be back in just a moment. If you love what we do on Living on Earth, Please support us. Even $5 would help. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth, and I'm Steve Kerwood. We're back now with Christiana Figueres. She's Executive Secretary at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I want to talk more about developing countries. At the Paris meeting, some folks from developing countries pointed out one of the big obstacles around finance is the interest rate environment, that when European and American companies go into the capital markets, they borrow at 2%, 3 4%. Whereas if you're in India or in Cameroon, you're going to pay 12 15%. And that therefore, there's a tremendous advantage that the rich part of the world has over the developing world. And yet the developing world needs lots of capital resources. How do we get
1: around that? In general, it's true. It's not true of every single developing country. But in general, it is true that developing countries face a higher cost of capital than industrialized countries. Why is that? Because A, there is at least a perception, whether it's true or not, but there is a perception of political risk. There is a perception of policy risk, meaning that some countries put a policy in and then take it out. There's a currency risk. And there is what I call the risk of the unknown, because a lot of capital, you know, we just don't have a long-standing tradition of investing the levels of investment that need to go in now into developing world, right? We're, we're getting there, but it still is a considered very risky business. So from an investor point of view, you can't blame them because they have to give a value to that risk. So the challenge here in bringing down the cost of capital is you need to bring other financial institutions whose bread and butter it is to work in our developing countries, who understand our realities, and who actually have the possibility and the understanding of taking that risk off the table. So here I'm talking, for example, very specifically about developing banks. The Inter-American Bank knows Latin America very well. The African Development Bank knows the African countries very well. They know all our quirks. They've been working there for years. It is their responsibility to actually work here and, you know, to be very specific, to go into the NDCs that all of these countries have put on the table and work with other financial institutions so that the developing banks can be helpful in developing the kind of financial instruments that are necessary to buy down some of the risk and then attract foreign capital investment that can go in there at a cost of capital that is competitive.
0: Why isn't that happening? We're facing a climate emergency. The people do need to develop in a sustainable, low-carbon way. Not much time, and yet, the money doesn't seem no, to be moving. I, in this. I,
1: I completely agree. You know, I've I've come to the conclusion that we have moved from you know the financial crisis of two thousand and eight to the financial emergency of two thousand and sixteen, and the fact is, you know, that today two thousand sixteen we see capital that has been accumulating since two thousand and eight because there is no place to put the capital. So you have an accumulation of capital here, over here, you know, with my left hand, and with my right hand, you have an enormous need for investment, particularly in infrastructure, both for energy generation for transport and all of the infrastructure that is necessary for adaptation. And so you have supply and demand, and they're not talking to each other yet. I am feeling a huge urgency around how do we build the bridge? Big question mark.
0: So you worked really hard on this. Six years you served as executive secretary, and you're about to leave. What's ahead for you? What do you do to top this?
1: <laughs> well, it is difficult to top honestly. It's been a, a true privilege and an honor to support all governments and so much of the private sector that has actually also accompanied us as well as civil society. It's been just been a fantastic opportunity to have that breadth and depth of collaboration for a true common cause. But what do I do after the 7th of July? Honestly, it's still unknown. There are many balls in the air. There are many muffins in the oven. And I'm still trying to decide which of those muffins do I want to prioritize and pull out of the oven. So stay tuned. We'll see.
0: They need a new Secretary General at the U.N.,
1: Not they, we, we, the population, we, the peoples, need a new secretary general at the UN. And I am actually quite happy about the fact that it does seem that there is a huge political push for that to be a woman. And I think it is about time, after 70 years of the United Nations and eight secretary generals, it's about time that there be a woman We also know that it is, if we follow geographic rotation, it is the turn of Eastern Europe. And there are currently quite a few female candidates, some male also, but quite a few female candidates from Eastern Europe and from other regions. So we will wait and see what happens.
0: To wrap this up, so if you were in charge of all of this, what would you do to get this to respond to the tremendous challenges that the science tells us we have?
1: You know, I'm very happy, and I think everybody is, about the direction that we're moving in, because we are moving incontrovertibly and unstoppably toward a decarbonized world and a more resilient world. The piece that is not there yet is the sense of urgency. The fact is that we would move toward that decarbonized um, society and a more resilient infrastructure globally anyway, because that has already started, but what we need to do is increase the speed. So I'm on a personal campaign to invite every person that I meet to swallow an alarm clock and to realize that you know, this is ticking inside of us. We just cannot rest on our laurels and we can't. This is not about business as usual. This is, you know, a new definition of BAU. This is business as urgent. So let's swallow the alarm clock, step up to the plate, and increase the speed with which we're taking all of these fantastic decisions, but that are not happening fast enough.
0: Christiana Figueres is the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today.
1: Thank you very much, T, for the invitation to be here with you today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Young activists spoke out forcefully at the Paris climate talks, demanding in a variety of creative ways that the world put the brakes on the present rush to the climatic abyss. In the face of a demonstration ban imposed at first during the talks by the French government, which was still reeling from the terrorist attacks, Activists held a shoe in that even included a pair from Pope Francis. And when the deal was finally struck and the demonstration ban lifted, activists stretched huge red banners through the streets of the French capital, symbolic of the red lines that climate change must not cross. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald took his microphone there.
4: So, my name's Kit Bennett. I'm from York in England. One of the reasons I'm here is because my government says that it's acting on climate change at the Paris Climate Change Conference. That's a lie. They're supporting fracking, they're cutting funds for renewable energy. We need to show that we don't support the actions of the British government and so many other governments in the world that have only false solutions to the problem of climate change.
5: It's a worse deal than Kyoto 18 years ago. That's why the front line of climate change isn't the politicians. It's people like us taking, blockading, keeping the phosphorus in the ground, fracking the front line in England, in Eastern Europe it's brown coal, and that is the way forward.
4: Yeah, my name is Clayton Thomas Mueller. I'm a Cree from Northern Canada, Treaty 6 territory, and I'm here to demonstrate that Indigenous peoples are the red line. We are hit first and hardest by climate change and its associated drivers, like, for example, Canada's controversial tar sands development in Northern Alberta. And so, you know, we're here with 35 indigenous representatives from the front line against the fight against the fossil fuel regime in North America to stand in solidarity with people from across the planet that are fighting for climate justice.
0: Like the campaigners in Paris, Back in 1970, the first Earth Day saw many activists and concerned citizens take to the streets. But those demonstrations mostly focused on air and water pollution and mindless development. Although there are still plenty of protests against pollution, sprawl, and habitat loss, today much of the environmental movement is focused on the changing climate. And climate justice and responsibility are just what Ted Hamilton is calling for. He's a Harvard University law student, a member of the Divest Harvard Student Group, and a plaintiff in the student lawsuit that's asking the courts to order Harvard College to divest its endowment from fossil fuels. Ted Hamilton, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for inviting me. Now, most people who come to Harvard Law School don't come to rock the boat. A law degree from Harvard is generally a ticket to everything from the presidency of the United States, the Supreme Court, major corporate law firms. Why are you involved in these protests?
4: Well, I think that being in a place like Harvard and Harvard Law School gives you a really special opportunity to rock the boat. As you said, people listen to you maybe unfairly. There's unfair attention shined upon the Harvard campus. And so even though we're students, we have this unearned power to influence conversation and to make a difference for the climate movement. I care a lot about the law and I care a lot about what I'm learning at Harvard Law School, but climate change is so important that there's not really time to take a seat and take time out as a student. We have to be doing everything we can right now, regardless of what we're doing. Talk to me about the divestment campaign that you're part of at Harvard. What do you hope to accomplish with this campaign? Like a lot of other divestment campaigns, I think one of our primary goals is to shine a light on the moral urgency of climate change. This is not just a technical issue. It's not just a scientific issue. The morality of the fossil fuel system as it is, is something that implicates powerful institutions like Harvard. And so one of the first things that we need to do if we're going to enact more proactive climate policies is turn around the thinking that places like Harvard have nothing to do with climate change. We need to start realizing how important all the different bricks like Harvard's fossil fuel investments are to building a wall impeding change. One thing we want to do is change the consciousness around business as usual and encourage Actors that might seem on the outside of the climate debate to realize that inaction is also a choice and we all need to do something.
0: Now, recently, Yale's chief investment officer, David Swenson, who's who's well known in that role, announced that Yale is starting to reduce its exposure to fossil fuels. In other words, it's in the process of divesting. How do you folks at Divest Harvard feel about this news? I mean, after all,
4: Yale is Harvard's biggest rival. I think it's a good move by Yale. My personal opinion is that Yale divested for good reasons, not the best reasons. It's another signal that the fossil fuel industry is a thing of the past. Society is moving on. We know that in a few decades from now, society will have have to have reached a point where places like Yale, places like Harvard are not investing in fossil fuel companies. And so this is kind of just sticking your finger in the air, seeing which way the wind is blowing. It's time to get out better reasons to divest are because it's wrong, not because it's failing to make money for very rich institutions. But it's a great signal of where we are and that we've turned the corner where this is no longer a good or a prudent thing to do.
0: Talk to me about the student lawsuit you brought against Harvard. You and some of your classmates are in court. I think you call it the Harvard Climate Justice Coalition versus the president and fellows of Harvard College. What do you want in this lawsuit?
4: We filed the lawsuit in the fall of 2014, and we have two claims. One is that Harvard is violating its charitable duties by investing in fossil fuels while knowing the tremendous harms that flow from global warming. They're also committing a tort against future generations by helping to perpetuate further fossil fuel infrastructure and the burning of carbon reserves. And so the relief that we seek in court is that Harvard identify and start to pull out of the publicly traded fossil fuel companies in which it has direct and indirect investments.
0: And for the non-lawyers,
4: explain what the tort is as a concept, by the way. A tort is a wrong that you do to somebody else. And so if I hit you with my car, that's a tort. If I invest in fossil fuel companies and perpetuate the global warming that's going to lead to sea level rise and hurt many countries and many people, that's a tort as well.
0: There was a time that Harvard did very well by investing in fossil fuel companies. Going back more than a century, at what point did it become, in your view, a breach of fiduciary trust to invest in this stuff?
4: Well, one important point to focus on, I think, is what institutions like Harvard or companies like ExxonMobil know about climate change. There was a certain period of time where maybe people didn't really realize the consequences of burning carbon reserves and our fossil fuel economy, but that point is far behind us now. Harvard has known for a long time the support that it gives to the fossil fuel system, to the fossil fuel industry, And especially now when we see peer institutions divesting, a lot of people have made the moral choice. It's very hard to argue that Harvard's continued public support for the fossil fuel industry is anything but a decision in favor of business as usual and against climate justice. So, Ted, you're about to get out of Harvard Law School, graduate, go out into the big world. What are you going to do? I am starting a nonprofit with two of my colleagues called the Climate Defense Project to provide legal support to the climate movement, to climate activists, and to try to push the edges of affirmative climate litigation. Wow. What kind of cases are you looking to take? Well, we really want to support people who are being arrested for acts of civil disobedience to try to stop fossil fuel infrastructure or draw attention to the climate crisis. So we would love to defend activists at trial who are putting their bodies on the line for this issue trying to use the law as another venue for activism and continue their campaigns through the trial system, the public trust litigation that some folks have experimented with to hold the government to its obligation to protect our natural resources, constitutional claims, some of the divestment litigation that we discussed. I think there's a lot of creative law to be done with regards to climate change issues. You're an activist who's
0: been involved in this for a long time. How do you feel about the Paris Climate Agreement that was
4: reached at the end of last year? Well, it's a good milestone. 1.5 degrees Celsius is what the countries of the world agreed to target. It's a good talking point. It's something that we can bring out to the movement and bring out to the unconvinced about this is now just the common sense of what we need to do to save the planet. But there weren't very many binding requirements that came out of the Paris Agreement. And so I don't think that global society should be looking to its heads of state and to the corporate leaders who were heavily involved in negotiations in Paris to solve this problem for us. They can recognize what the science is, but we still do not see the binding requirements that we need to actually make that limited warming a reality. So there's still a whole lot of work to do. And for you to do. And for us to do. Ted Hamilton
0: is a Harvard Law student who plans to become a defense attorney for environmental activists. Ted, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thank you very much. To find out what's going on beyond the headlines in this Earth Day season, we join Peter Dykstra of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's EHN.org. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter.
5: Well, hey Steve, I've got one of the coolest stories I've seen in quite a while. It's from the online magazine Quartz. It's about the Wapichan tribe, about 9,000 people in southern Guyana. They knew their lands were increasingly under threat from illegal logging and mining, but they needed proof. So they took to chat rooms, YouTube videos, and they built a drone. A
0: drone. Hey, that really is cool. Any results?
5: Well, not yet, but they're compiling the evidence in ways they never could before and pressuring the government to take action.
0: That's definitely a, a neat story to start with. What do you have next for us today?
5: I wrote a piece last week called The Dithering Dozen. It's about politicians and media figures who lost their backbones and went from accepting climate change to denying it. Here are some of the folks on the list. It's both Presidents Bush, presidential candidates Mitt Romney, John McCain, Marco Rubio, Senator Jim Inhofe, and Fox News' Bill O'Reilly and Rupert Murdoch. But I want to pull out a few favorites we'll call the flip-flopping four. Okay, I'm ready. Start with a governor who, in 2007, established a climate change subcabinet, saying climate change is important to all Alaskans. I'm
0: not Sarah Palin. Come on.
5: Yeah, Sarah Palin. Neither the subcabinet nor Governor Palin stuck around the Alaska government for long. But today she says climate change is bogus and it's an attempt at
0: mind control. Okay, next in line, and you're flip-flopping for.
5: I've got another former governor, Bobby Jindal. He acknowledged human impact on the climate, but then he said climate change is a Trojan horse designed to ruin the U.S. economy. But here's the thing. He said both those things in the same day in 2014. Here's still another governor, Chris Christie.
0: Ah, from New Jersey. That's your home state.
5: It is indeed. In 2011, Christie said scientists were convinced on climate and we should defer to the experts. But while running for president last year, he said climate change is in a crisis. And he added, quote, That's my feeling. I didn't say I was relying on any scientist.
0: Well, I guess that's so much for deferring to the experts. Let's um, see, one, two, three. So who's your final flip flopper, number four?
5: Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. As a college professor, he was a faculty advisor to the Campus Sierra Club chapter. In 2007, he famously filmed a climate change ad with then-speaker Nancy Pelosi. But in 2011, as a presidential candidate, he renounced the ad and said he had doubts about climate change.
0: Well, we have a whole list of these dithering dozens and links to all the stories in today's discussion at LOE.org. And, of course, a link to the history page, which today is, Peter?
5: Earth Day, it's been 46 years since the first Earth Day. Here's a few things that have gone away or close to it since then. Domestic coal and steel industries, green Republicans, direct dumping into waterways, leaded gasoline, except for in small planes.
0: Well, big steps forward, except for all those jobs lost in steel and coal and among the green Republicans as well.
5: Yeah, absolutely. But here are five problems we pretty much didn't even know about in 1970 that are a big deal now. Sea level rise, ozone depletion, massive declines in tropical and boreal forests and fisheries, Superfund sites, over a thousand of them across the country, and there are probably a couple of hundred cities as polluted as Pittsburgh used to be in places like China and India.
0: But there is some good news. Consider the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer.
5: Yeah, but here are five things that have barely changed since the first Earth Day in 1970. Environmental justice, poor and minority communities still get dumped on. They get more than their share of pollution. Overconsumption, getting worse all the time. The internal combustion engine is still our daddy. There's no clue on how to dispose of nuclear waste. And finally, greenwashing and denial are still all over the place and not challenged nearly enough.
0: Yeah, but there's still hope, too. I mean, think about wind and solar energy. They weren't around in 1970. Electric vehicles, there are plenty of things to look forward to today. Well, there's a lot
5: of good news and bad news to grab, and we'll try and grab it all.
0: Peter to with Environmental Health News and DailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. Talk to you soon.
5: All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: This year's Earth Day marks a special occasion for living on Earth because we started our weekly broadcasts at this time 25 years ago. Key topics were pollution, habitat loss, and human health, but I mostly launched this program because I felt the threat of climate disruption was the biggest journalistic story that was going largely untold. And frankly, according to a survey by the Roper organization back then, not much of the public cared. A slim 14% of those in the Roper survey said a changing climate was of concern, meaning on the flip side, more than 80% would wonder why they were hearing so much about global warming when they tuned in to Living on Earth. And indeed, at the time we launched, the news cycle was consumed by Operation Desert Storm, the first war with Iraq that featured monstrous amounts of particulate pollution and global warming gases that belched from the many oil wells set afire in the conflict. But we soldiered on about climate, and we continue to cover it closely. Because, at the end of the day, a dysfunctional climate is an even bigger threat for humanity than the more traditional risks associated with questions of war and peace, the economy, health, and habitat protection. It trumps them all. Today, while there is still a fair amount of climate indifference and outright denial, many more people are aware of the climate risks and are taking action to try to keep a world that works for humans and the full diversity of life. We'd like to thank the many people who have helped us over the years, and I'd like to think that living on Earth has made a difference, however big or small. But unlike 25 years ago, we have little time left to get this climate thing right. Coming up, honoring some of the bravest environmental campaigners. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from Wonder Capital, an online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. More information and account creation at wondercapital.com. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Goldman Awards are perhaps the most prestigious environmental prizes on the planet, presented annually to six environmental activists from around the world who, quote, demonstrate exceptional courage and commitment, often working at great risk to protect our environment. This year's ceremony took place on April 18th at the Opera House in San Francisco. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Douglas E. Goldman from the Goldman Environmental Foundation.
5: Welcome to the 27th Goldman Environmental Prize Ceremony.
0: Douglas Goldman started by honoring one of last year's winners, Berta Caceres of Honduras, murdered by gunmen just weeks ago. Berta won the Goldman Prize for her work resisting a series of dam developments that could have cut off her indigenous Lenca people from traditional access to safe water, food, and medicine. Douglas Goldman says that her death should be viewed as an assassination and her life an inspiration to all those fighting for justice.
1: Berta was a gentle soul. However, when confronted with the wrongs being threatened upon her indigenous Lenca people of Honduras, she was a fiercely determined fighter for that which is right. For her outspoken stance in defense of her people, she was subjected to numerous and constant death threats. On March 3rd, the threats became a reality. As we continue with this evening's ceremony, we dedicate this occasion to Berta. And we retain the hope that such outrageous, inhuman actions to unjustly stifle the the defense of native peoples and their environments will once and for all cease.
0: After Douglas Goldman, three poets continued the tribute to Caceres.
1: We will look for
2: you in the villages of stars every night. We will listen for your voice like a whispering wind and hear your laughter in every crashing wave.
3: We will stand for justice.
2: And feel our feet planted in every ounce of soil that we have always belonged to. Knowing that we are safe. Knowing that when you return to us, we We will become millions. Bertha, we will always carry you with us. Your resistance, your vision, will continue to be passed on in every sacred drop of water.
0: That surrounds us. That was Erica Cespedes, Teresa Saragatonu, and Leslie Valencia performing part of their poem for Berta Caceres. Berta's presence was felt throughout the evening, but never more than when Maxima Acuña accepted the Goldman Prize for her work resisting mining development in Peru. In lieu of an acceptance speech, the tiny Peruvian woman sang a song.
3: Yo soy
0: una jaqueñita. I am a woman from the highlands who lives in the mountain ranges, she sang. Maxima Acuna is an indigenous farmer from the Cajamarca Highlands of Peru, near one of the largest open-pit copper and gold mines in the world, run by Peru's Buenaventura and Colorado-based Newmont Mining Companies. In 2010, the companies tried to build a new mine 10 miles away, right in Maxima's backyard. The project would have destroyed four mountain lakes, but Maxima stood in the way, refusing to leave her land. In 2011, armed men arrived, destroyed her house, and beat her brutally. Then the mining company pressed charges against her for allegedly squatting on the 60 acres she bought legally in 1994. She was sentenced to three years in prison. But she fought the conviction and eventually won her freedom and the right to return to her land, where she grows potatoes and raises guinea pigs, sheep, and cows. The mine is now on hold, but Maxima continues to face threats of violence and harassment, including the destruction of her potato crop.
2: That is why I defend the land. I defend the water, because that is what life is for. I am not afraid of the power of these corporations. I will continue fighting. This is for those who have died in Saladin and Bamba Marca and those who continue to fight in Cajamarca.
0: That was Maxima Acuna, winner of the 2016 Goldman Environmental Prize from South and Central America. North America's winner is quite a bit younger than Maxima, but she too earned her prize for fighting against a polluting industry in her neighborhood In this case, what would have been the nation's largest trash incinerator. Destiny Watford is now 20 years old and studying at Towson College. Her environmental activism began as a high school student in South Baltimore when she found out what the incinerator touted as a source of clean energy meant for her hometown.
2: Hi, my name is Destiny Watford. I'm from Curtis Bay, which is a small community in Baltimore.
0: So tell us a little bit about Curtis Bay. What's your community like?
2: Yeah, so... Curtis Bay has, it's a small community, but it has a really long history with air pollution. So when you live in Curtis Bay, you're likely to die from lung cancer and respiratory disease and to suffer from asthma. We have a lot of things that we're really proud of in our community, like parks and rec centers and community gardens, but it's divided by what seems to be an endless sea of polluting industry. We have The largest medical waste incinerator, a coal terminal, the city's landfill. My mom has asthma. My neighbor died of lung cancer. I mean, in Baltimore, the deaths related to air pollution is higher than the homicide rate. Really? Yeah, just to give you like an idea of how bad it is. I mean, Curtis Bay has some of the worst air pollution in the nation, has the worst air pollution in Maryland.
0: Talk to me more about this latest threat to public health in your community. I believe it's a trash incinerator. Mm -hmm. What exactly is it and what impact do you think that this incinerator would have on public health?
2: Yeah, so there is a plan to build the nation's largest trash burning incinerator, less than a mile away from my high school, Benjamin Franklin. And a group of friends and I joined together to stop it. We learned about the incinerator and we learned that it would have been burning 4,000 tons of trash every day that it was permitted to release 240 pounds of mercury every year and 1,000 pounds of lead. And from the crisis in Flint, we know about how detrimental lead can be, even at tiny amounts, and the damage Mm -hmm. that can cause to our health.
0: So how did you find out about this project when you were a high school student? And how did you get your friends and classmates, other young folks involved in the effort to stop it?
2: So we learned about it through a local newspaper called the Baltimore Brew. And- We learned that the project had been going on since 2009. So like when I was in middle school playing with Barbies and stuff. I didn't even know what an incinerator was when I first learned about it. And Mm -hmm. that was the case for a lot of people throughout Curtis Bay, including our fellow students. But once we told them the facts of the incinerator and the damage that it could cause to our community, they were immediately against it. So it was really easy to get people to care about the issue because It was an act of survival and their health would be put on the line if it was built.
0: So you put together a campaign. What role did things like art play in your campaign?
2: Yeah, that's a good question that I actually want to answer with a story. So while we were canvassing one day, I knocked on a man's door and he answered and I told him about the incinerator and about the damage it could cause. I asked him how he felt about what he had just learned and if he was interested in learning more. And Essentially, what he said to me and the group was that, you know, the work that you kids are doing is pointless. Curtis Bay is and always will be a dumping ground. And that moment kind of served as this transition for us because we recognized that it wasn't going to be enough to just tell people about the incinerator, that it was going to take this shift in mentality from passive acceptance of things like the incinerator, just because that's kind of the status quo to resistance, which would be like saying that just because that was creative space history doesn't mean that that has to be its future. To make that shift, we relied on the tools that we had. So we weren't lobbyists pushing any political agenda. We were artists. We were poets. We were musicians. We were writers. And so we wrote poems and made music and wrote speeches and articles about what it means to live in a place like Curtis Bay, in a place that's been used as a dumping ground and as a place where people's lives will be sacrificed to support the marketplace. And we use those tools to shape our narrative and to tell our story. And we did that in so many different ways and with so many different people that really resonated and began to make that shift and to change people's hearts and minds into thinking that there can be change and there is something that we can do. And this isn't the end.
0: I understand that you centered your campaign around getting local organizations like the public schools mm-hmm. to cut their contracts with this incinerator company. How successful has that strategy been?
2: That was huge. I mean, when we learned that public institutions that we knew and loved, like the Baltimore City Public School System or like local museums like the BMA and the Walters Art Museum, we were outraged, but we also recognized that these institutions have the opportunity to make the right choice, which would be investing in not only our future as like young people, but also the future of our city and of our nation and investing in a positive future that doesn't put our lives at risk. So to answer your question more directly, we used arts to effectively changed the hearts and minds of people on the Baltimore City Public School Board by going to a presentation, demonstrating the art that we had created together. I recited a speech about incineration. Another member of the group recited a poem that he had written, a soliloquy about incineration in Baltimore and what that means for health. And two members of the group, amazing members, who were musicians and rappers, they created what we now call the Free Your Voice Anthem that highlighted this transition between passive acceptance and active resistance in taking a stand.
0: So what's the status of this incinerator now?
2: So the MDE, which is the Maryland Department of the Environment, determined that the incinerator's permits were expired. And that came through a long process, like months, of reaching out to MDE with testimonies and petitions and letters from doctors, environmentalists, stating the issues with lead and mercury, we had been sending that stuff to them for months. And eventually, through a lot of public pressure, which included like people getting arrested by doing like a sit-in at MDE, sacrificing their freedom to show that this is a serious issue and a matter of survival, all of that pressure led to MDE determining that Energy Answers permits were expired, which they were. So as of right now, the permits that Energy Answers would need to construct They don't have them. So the incinerator is stopped.
0: Destiny, what does race have to do with this?
2: That's a really, really good question. So Curtis Bay, Curtis Bay is a poor neighborhood. It's a food desert. And a question that we asked a lot in the group was, you know, why here? Why in Curtis Bay? Usually polluting developments like the incinerator project are concentrated in minority and low-income areas in places where, people have been oppressed, have been taken advantage of for generations for so long, and that there is believed to be this lack of a voice or that people will not resist if this is going to be coming to their community. And something that we emphasize and a really important piece to mention is that originally back in 2009 when the incinerary was proposed a community association, a small group of community members supported the project, not because it was this amazing project, but because there is so little development that comes to Curtis Bay that the first thing that's offered, people take up. And what we've been pushing for more recently is that we can't just accept any developments that come in. Developments that do happen in the community have to be community controlled and don't put our lives at risk.
0: Destiny Watford is a winner of this year's Goldman Environmental Prize. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
2: No, thank you. If the incinerator takes away a breath, how many do we need until there is nothing that's left? Until the smoke clogs up and we can't feel our chest, and the ones who don't catch the symptoms I'll consider blessed. This time is now before our planet gets destroyed, before death is something we cannot avoid. It's time for change before we don't have a choice, so let's stand tall together and free our voice. it all get better. We can say the world. And it starts with music. Get your message heard. And along in better. we can save the world. You got a real voice from all the boys to the girls.
0: We leave you this week at the bottom of the world. Listen to the Canada Glacier in the McMurdo Dry Valley area of Antarctica. It's a small polar glacier that towers over a lake, and as it melts, the water trickles down and the ice creeks. Wind blows much of the time over this bleak but beautiful place making unearthly noises. Douglas Quinn recorded this sound portrait for the series' Wild Sanctuary CD called Antarctica. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Peter Boucher, Adelaide Chen, Jamie Kaiser, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo and Noel Flatt. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders